0: Sometimes I call your attention to these hymns that we need to look at again. Remember, we print everything in the bulletin so you can take it home with you and use it devotionally through the week. And this hymn that you just sang, you might be tempted to think is a modern one because it sounds modern, but actually Ann Steele was born in 1717. Ann Steele has written a lot of hymns that we have forgotten, that have been forgotten by the church. My theory is that they were intentionally forgotten perhaps in the 18th or the 19th century, because they were too honest. Honest about emotions, honest about the raw feelings of doubt. And you can hear it in this second stanza. Oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. Or hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? She expresses very honestly and poignantly how the grief, laments the grief she's feeling, but there is resolution. No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer, oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. This gives voice to our lament, difficult times, points us to a faithful Savior. It's in keeping with the pattern of Scripture. Scripture. It's appropriate for a day like today, it's appropriate as we study these minor prophets, these shorter books that are tucked in to the end of the Old Testament. We've been looking at Joel in particular for the last several weeks and we come to the end of chapter 2 today, I ask you to turn to Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32. You can find that on page 762 in the Bible for you in the pew. And so far it's been a fairly grim book. Uh, These smug people, people very prosperous and comfortable in their materialism, in the comfort of their, the prosperity of their nation, God loves them too much to allow them to continue in that way, and so he allows a plague of locusts to come on their crops and destroy their economy. And being the sovereignly gracious one he is, as we saw last week, he is able to tell them they will repent he will bring them back and when he does he will restore their crops he promises that even before they turn but then the question is that after we 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 know that we are rebels we know we turn against the Lord and he loves us enough to discipline us at times and he restores us but is there work for us to do after that is it just a mop-up operation Does he just bring us back and we continue on in the status quo and we drag our feet shamefully until we get to heaven? Or, as we know is common with God's grace, is it beyond what we could ever ask or imagine? Is it really true that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound? Well, look at verse 28 of Joel chapter 2. We read to the end of the chapter. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. whom the Lord calls. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit afresh on us today and enable us to believe that which is impossible to believe on our own. Empower us to live in the power of the Spirit of Jesus in all that we do and say and think. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake, God's people said together, amen. In Augusta, Georgia, where I used to live and minister, my people there started a school, an inner city school, an urban private school. So desperate was the educational situation there that even the public school leaders found that school to be an ally and worked alongside them it was a school for the poor mainly most of the students are those who lived well below the poverty line and yet every day they were they were taught that they were image bearers of God they were given the best education they heard every day that they were loved they heard every day that Jesus had died for them he had a purpose for their life they went on to do well in high school. Most of them, many of them went on to college. Most all of them escaped the cyclical poverty they were in. Or I should say they do because the, the school continues to thrive. And by the way, it has a vibrant partnership with, with the Memphis Teacher Residency as well. Well, spending as much time in that school as I did, I heard the students often say in their assemblies or when they would come to our church, they would make their proclamation. They would recite the proclamation that they had memorized, and they did it with great gusto. I'll try to imitate it as I read it to you. I will strive for excellence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will work to achieve. I am the light of the world. I have something to offer. I am created in His image. I will change the world. I am more than a conqueror. Who can stand in my way if God is for me? Who can be against me if God is for me? I have no excuses. How could they say, I have no excuses? Not because they were taught that you have inside yourself, if you'll just stir it up, the spontaneous power to do whatever you want to. No, they were told every day, because you're created in God's image, because Jesus has died for you, because the Holy Spirit is real, you are more than a conqueror, there are no excuses. It was a repetition of Joel chapter 2 these verses that we just read. It is a repetition of the Pentecostal fulfillment of this prophecy that, that uh, Todd Erickson preached so well to you a number of weeks ago from Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of this prophetic promise that the Spirit would be poured out in such a way upon the church that they would be more than conquerors, they would be His witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And by the end of, chapter, of Acts people who would turn the world upside down. If that is true, and it is, if God has poured out the Spirit with Pentecostal power, and not in a way that is unique to that time, but poured it out so that it remains, and it remains true, that means that we are empowered by that same Spirit. And the only thing that prevents us from being the spreading flame as the apostles were, as that little band of ragtag disciples were, that spread that gospel across the Roman Empire. The only thing that prevents us is the excuses we make by which we quench the Spirit. What are those excuses? The excuses that are taken on by this passage are timidity, and unworthiness, and procrastination. These are the excuses we still use to quench the spirit and live in the status quo, and by which we fail to see the Pentecostal power of the early church realized in our personal lives and our corporate churches. The first excuse is timidity. Timidity. Lord, I can't do what you are calling me to do because I have too many enemies. Uh, Lord, I can't do what I am called to do. It's just impossible. The whole world is against us. The culture is against us. Uh, My family is against me. My my employer is against me. This whole culture is gone. The best we can do is, is just try to survive and hope that Jesus comes soon. No apostle believed that. No member of the early church believed that. They believed that they were living in the last days. Now, Joel doesn't use that language here. He says, it shall come to pass, verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on on flesh. Peter interprets that in Acts chapter 2 and he says, in the last days, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. After what? What was, what was Joel saying that has to happen, how this has to happen? After what? After the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, after that, I will pour out my spirit on the church. What happened there? Jesus made, Christ made a covenant with the Father before the creation of the world. We call it the covenant of redemption. And the Father said, I want you to go and I want you to save my people. I want you to do it by dying for them, substituting your life to be a ransom for them, to be their righteousness. I want you to live in their place. I want you to rise and want you to do battle with hell, rise in victory over it, and save my people. And if you do, you can ask for whatever you wish and I will grant it. And Christ, we know from the Bible, I want you to give me the nation's. And how is that prayer answered? By the giving of the Holy Spirit that enabled the church to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the nations. After Christ fulfilled His promise, God fulfilled His promise to give Him the nations by pouring the Spirit out on the church. These Christians, early Christians, knew they were living in this time known as the last days. Now the Bible makes it clear what the characteristic of the last, what are the characteristics of the last days? What are the characteristics of the Church of Jesus Christ, the period in which the Holy Spirit has been poured out with power. It doesn't mean, first of all, it doesn't mean that there was no spirit in the Old Testament. There had to be a spirit in the Old Testament. Had to be a spirit by which the world was created, a spirit by which people kept the law, a spirit by which the prophets proclaimed the truth, a spirit by which the the word was written down. The spirit was active in the Old Testament, but it is made, his work is made more obvious in the New Testament in these ways. First of all, the spirit is made more obvious now by our voluntary, heartfelt obedience. This is what Ezekiel meant when he said, I'm going to write the law on your hearts, Ezekiel 36. It's not that it's fundamentally different from the Old Testament, but it's going to be very, very clear in the New Testament that my people keep my word, keep my law because they want to, because they love me. You see, in the Old Testament, there were were laws and rules, and if you didn't keep those laws and rules, you could be put out of the community. You You could be punished corporately. Corpora- corporally, physically. There's even, there's even um, capital punishment for some of those. So, it, yes, you only kept the law in the Old Testament by the Spirit enabling you, but it wasn't so obvious why people were keeping the law in the New Testament. We keep it from the heart. Secondly, it would be manifested by our voluntary gathering as the corporate body of Christ. No one came to you and and, uh, forced you with a a stick or a gun to your head to come to church, unless you're a small child. Uh, But we came by our spirit. We, We wanted to. Miracle of miracles. We got up on a Sunday morning, and we're here enduring this sermon, going through worship. The spirit, only the spirit can explain that. Third characteristic of the last days is this broad ability to profess truth. I'll cause my spirit to be poured out in such a way that children will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men see visions. Servants will proclaim the truth. This broad ability that that children will teach us. That people whose voices were muted before, slaves, women, will now be teachers from God's... They will, they will share what the Spirit teaches them in the Word. We will instruct one another. It will be an amazing display of the Spirit's power, This not just for prophets or apostles, but for every member of the church of Jesus Christ, everyone who professes His name. And the fourth characteristic of the last days is that it will clarify that Jesus is the Redeemer, they were anticip- anticipating a Messiah, but, but that Jesus is the Redeemer and that, that He would put His fire in their bones, that they would spread that good news regardless of opposition. Regardless of threat, they would spread that good news. That's what happened. But the, but the, 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 the gospel spread across the Roman Empire... In a particularly fast and powerful way for a few reasons that need to be recaptured today. One is the clear declaration that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord of all, and He is the only King in God. They got killed for that. Another very, very powerful reason for why the gospel spread so rapidly, with their practical and courageous deeds of mercy, practical and courageous deeds of mercy. Why was that important? Because you you remember I said that last week that the Bible never gives us, the Lord never gives us the command to be strong and courageous without the accompanying promise, I will be with you. And so if, if they're going to proclaim, be strong and courageous, this, this good news will make you strong and courageous even in an oppressive at, uh, empire, they had to say, because the Lord is with you, and they had to demonstrate it by the objective presence of the church. So they said, yes, God loves you. God is with us, and the church is here. We are here with you to prove to you that God is with you, and we're going to prove it to you in heroic ways. So they, you know, there were people who, who uh, said that little girls were so unimportant, they, they needed to be thrown in the trash heap. And the courageous Christians dug them out of the trash heaps, brought them into their homes, and raised them. The poor to be neglected, they serve them. Throughout history, Christians have done the same. Remember those those midwives in in Egypt who risked their lives to save the children of the Israelites. Shiphrah and Puah, whose names are written in Scripture. They risked their lives to demonstrate God is with you and He loves you. Think about Esther. Think about the, the Christians who protected Jews in the Holocaust. Think about those brave Christians in the Underground Railroad. Think of those brave Christians throughout the centuries who've protected the lives of the despised, including women and unborn children. How does this word apply this day in this cultural moment? Remember, we proclaim that God is a God of justice and mercy. Justice means that that, that he is on the side of the most vulnerable and his people are to be on the side of the most vulnerable too. So when we see people mistreated because of their race, we stand up for them, even if it gets us maligned even by evangelicals who say we're just preaching social justice. And when we see that unborn children are put at risk, we stand up for them, even if it gets us maligned. And when we see that women are being mistreated or neglected because they're single mothers, or even if they've had an abortion, we show compassion to them because that's what Christians do in keeping this beautiful Beautiful gospel of the word. That God's grace and love, they are manifested objectively in the body of Christ. As we don't just get involved politically, we don't join the harangue of those exchanging assaults, we do something about it. May I just tell you what has been my experience for the last three decades of ministry, as I've preached often on this theme, that, the, that, yes, Christians can say some dumb things, and we've said a lot of them lately. And Christians can do some horrible things in the name of Christ. But the church of Jesus Christ overall, the gospel-centered church, has never failed when I have issued this invitation. If you are a woman In a desperate and frightening situation, if you are here, if you're within the sound of my voice, I invite you to come and let us help you. It doesn't matter how you've gotten in this situation, how you've become pregnant, or the situation in which you had an abortion. We offer the Savior's compassion and healing mercy. If you have that, if you are pregnant and you don't know what to do and you say, how am I going to raise this child? How am I going to, this This child has special needs or or I, I don't have a good job or I don't have a way to for transportation. I, I don't have enough money. I'm going to be shamed by my family. It doesn't matter what it is. We will be with you. You know, the church has never let me down in that promise. And this one I know won't because we have... Thousands of man hours represented here of people who are doing just this, walking alongside unwed teenage mothers, helping people find foster care or adoption for a child that they want to bring into the world but they can't raise, helping women find gainful employment, helping them find transportation, helping them find health care. Someone is here right now or they were. Marion, where are you? with One for One. Hey, Marion, thank you for being here. Would you stand up so everybody can see you? Marion represents one of our partners, One for One Ministries. Thank you very much. Just one of our many ministries that walks alongside women and their children until they get on their feet. We don't, we don't give one penny to political causes because... It's not effective. But we give millions and millions of dollars to truly compassionate alternatives. And not just give the money, but we do it in practical deeds. Special needs children have a home in this place, our Shine ministry. We show compassion to those women who have, their, have become pregnant even in the most unthinkable of ways one of those children conceived in such a way her mother bravely brought her into the brought him into the world one of those children gave me a hug last week they're here and thriving because of this church and the body of Christ we have good news that is unthinkable for the world that is limited in its perspective we invite you dear woman or family come come to the ministry of this church and we promise to help you and your child or if you are on the other side of an abortion I've walked with many women through that too how can we make such a promise not because we're great not because we know where all the resources will come from Well, we can make that promise because of Pentecost. Because God the Father has poured out the spirit through which the creation was made and who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who promises all things needful for giving that kind of compassion and resource and proving that God is with us and therefore we are not to be afraid. The second excuse confronted in this passage is unworthiness. Unworthiness. Where is it confronted? Just in those those labels that I read earlier, uh, that I alluded to earlier, verses 28 and 29. You see, these are the people who were determined that were d- considered unworthy in the first century: sons and daughters, children, are to be seen and not heard, especially little girls. What can they bring to a family or to culture? Old men. They're no longer contributors to the economy. Put them off to the side. Young men, what do they know? And servants, they're not even human beings. They're chattel. They're tools to be used. But what does the gospel say to them? The gospel says Jesus Christ died for every one of these people, every classification, and not only died for them, but dignifies them and utilizes them as warriors for His kingdom, as those through which the good news will go forward and, and societies will be healed. Little girls, little boys will teach their parents. Old men and old women will not be discarded. They'll be regarded with honor as the patriarchs and matriarchs, even young men will have wisdom beyond their age. And slaves will be made elders and pastors and bishops. This is the good news, that no one is able to declare anyone unworthy. Jesus said he came to break down every dividing wall. It's violent language in Ephesians. Katargeo. It is to cut. He came to cut down those walls, those labels that separate races, one being more important than another, or separate women and and men, or bond and slave, or worthy and unworthy. Unworthy. Call no man worthy, unworthy, tell no one unworthy, says the gospel, for whom Christ died. We stand on this biblical definition of personhood that every human being, regardless of their abilities, their disabilities, regardless of their race, their gender, they are image bearers of God. God. It's that principle that undid slavery. It is that principle that undid Jim Crow. And it is that principle that stands up for unborn children and women in distress. If you want to call that social justice, then call it social justice. It's justice that is brought to bear on society in the name of Jesus, the justice of God that stands for the weakest and most vulnerable because they're made in the image of God. Now, how does that bear on the cultural moment we're in? I won't get into the technicalities of this recent Supreme Court decision that did really nothing other than to put the issue back in the, in the arena of the states. And I've written on that in the messenger. We've linked it on the website so you can see a more technical uh, treatment of that there. But I will say this much. Remember Roe v. Wade in the 70s was a decision by the Supreme Court that it was a constitutional right to abort a fetus. Henry Blackman, at the time, the justice said, you know, if it's ever proven that the fetus is a person, then this will undermine this whole decision. And so in 1992, the court made another decision Casey, which said the personhood of the fetus is irrelevant. It's entirely the right of the woman to abort a child. She has just as much right over that that fetus as she does to discard any other organ in her body. And this rationale was given. It is necessary to protect her right to uh, to, to abort. It is necessary in order to defend one's own existence of meaning of the universe of the mystery of life. Forget about the politics. Forget about the technicalities of that case. It is the duty of the Church of Jesus Christ to stand up against any effort that says a person is not a person and a person is not made in the image of God. We stand for that. And you may choose different political ways to go about that, but that is the prophetic message that we, that we proclaim as it has, as the church of Jesus Christ has throughout the ages. And then we put flesh to that defense by the way we serve. And regardless of what anyone calls us. Now, there's some of you who are, so, are hurting so much today that you don't even know what happened in the culture recently or with the Supreme Court. And I want to make sure you get the application of this text too. There are plenty of forces in this world calling you unworthy, including your own mind. And we say to you as your family, you are not alone. We are with you. And you're an image bearer of God, a child of God. If Christ is your Savior, you are His child. No one has a right to say you are unworthy. The only one who has the right to declare anyone unworthy is the one who made you. That's God Himself. No one, no force, no political party, no no group at school, no one has the right to say you are unworthy. And by the way, you don't have that right to say that to yourself either. Some of you, and I can be this way too, you you preach these messages to yourself. I haven't done enough. I'm only worthy if I earn it. If only I were smarter. If only I were born in a different place. If only I had a different skin color. If only I had a different body shape. If only I had different parents. If only I had more money. If only, if only. You don't have the right to say you're unworthy. You know, God gets angry when you tell yourself you're unworthy. He says, you may not say that to my image bearer. That's my image. Don't tell yourself you're unworthy. That's offensive to me. Don't tell that person, that's my child, that they're unworthy. I died for them. The gospel is so beautiful. It convinces. It is... It can inoculate you against those, whatever forces, who tell you you are unworthy. Let me tell you how I heard about this recently. It was at at our General Assembly, the General Assembly of our denomination, and there was a missionary we support in uh, that part of the world where it is not only illegal to be a Christian, but you can die being a Christian. He ran up. He said, George, I got to tell you the good news. I said, Robert, tell me the good news. The good news, he said, is... That 23 families have come out of this false religion into Christianity this year. I've been in the ministry 40 years. I've never seen anything like it. 23. And let me tell you, he said the story about this one woman. She came to visit me last week. He said she had big sunglasses on. He thought she was just being stylish. She took them off. Her, Her eyes were black and blue. had just become a Christian, she was in an abusive, she was in an abusive culture, she was in an abusive marriage, and though it could have gotten her killed, and he tried to kill her, she said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, he started to beat her, of course she got away from it eventually, but not before she said this, you can beat me till you kill me but I will follow Jesus. Robert, I said, where did she get that? He said, when she learned that God loved her, that Jesus died for her, that she bore the image of God, that she was a daughter of God, she's a force to be reckoned with. You say, who am I? Can I really do anything important or of damage to the devil's kingdom in this? Absolutely. Absolutely. A hostile environment cannot conquer you. Whatever gospel testimony you give, whatever resistance you give, it is made a dart, a a dart, a mortal dart, a, a, a mortally wounding dart into the devil's side. And someday you will see him defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And you want to see at least one of your arrows in him. And it comes when you refuse to believe that you can be intimidated, and it comes when you refuse to believe that you're unworthy. What's the final excuse? Procrastination. And the text addresses it right here in verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. Mount Zion, where Christ died. In Jerusalem, where Christ died, he died in order that he might offer you today salvation. Yes, if you call on the name of the Lord right now, you will be saved. You will be made more than a conqueror. You will be made a recipient of this gift of the Holy Spirit. But don't just call on him once. We call on him over and over again. The Bible says when we call on the name of the Lord, we identify ourselves with him. Isaiah 44. When we call on the name of the Lord, we commit ourselves to his kingdom, Zechariah 13, 9. When we call on the name of the Lord, we proclaim that we're on the side of Christ and no weapon formed against us shall prevail and every word spoken against us shall be refuted and this will be the heritage of the servants of the Lord. The Lord emboldens us to be these fiery disciples. You say, what about that fire, though? He, he, he proclaimed a fire that was not just that dancing on the head of the apostles, fire and judgment to come. Well, that fire and judgment fell on Christ at his, at his death. And if you're in Christ, that fire and judgment will never fall on you, but that fire and judgment is coming. If you refuse to believe in him today, submit to to his ways and that fire and judgment will come on your works if you settle for the status quo and just try to slink through life in a way that doesn't cost you anything that just goes along with the tide of culture or with your political prejudices and the day will come when you'll be saved But as through fire, and you have no crowns to throw at Jesus' feet because you allowed the excuses of timidity and unworthiness and procrastination to eat up the inheritance that you should throw at Christ's honor. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way if you dare to let the Spirit use you." We know the Chronicles of Narnia pretty well, we've heard of them anyway, C.S. Lewis's Tales to Children. But we don't know all the books because not all the books have been made into movies. One of those books is The Horse and His Boy. It's about two children, one named, a little boy named Shasta and a little girl named Erebus, and they're talking horses, Bree and Win. And by the end of the book, they, I mean, they've run all through the book. They're running away from people trying to kill them, a tyrant. And eventually, they make it into a refuge, and they're finally able to take a little bit of a breath. And uh, a lion shows up. And uh, Shasta begins to complain to the lion to say, You won't believe what I've been through. I have been chased. I've had a most unfortunate experience, he said. I've had a most unfortunate life that lions are chasing me all the time. This lion asked him, or or said, uh, He had to correct a couple of things. Number one, your life isn't unfortunate. And number two, it wasn't many lions, I was the lion. In every scene, I was the lion who delivered you. I have the lion who fought for you. I am the lion that was running behind you when you were riding your horses most recently, and you thought you were riding as fast as you could, and you felt the hot breath of my nostrils, and my roar, and the swipe of my paw. That was me. And you ran even faster. Who are you? He says. And the lion says, myself. Aslan is the representative of Christ. That hot breath, that roar that pushed them forward is the Holy Spirit. That that wind you feel at your back, that push, the sting of his nails, that breath. It's not an adversarial god. That's God the Spirit saying, "Run faster because you can and win with me the prize." That's our power. What's keeping us from it? Nothing can. Let's give ourselves to him. Amen, church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Please fall with us, fall on us with the power of your spirit, and cause us to do uh, unimaginable things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Remove from us all of those excuses, all those things we're holding on to preserve the status quo, and in which we fail to see the remarkable power of Christ. Oh, Lord, get a name for yourself through us in Jesus' name. God's people said.